Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 31 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday, the 2nd of September. And uh, Leon, we're talking to, among others, a former treasurer of the state of Victoria about a new company called Gnosis that's spelled uh, K-N-O-S-Y-S. So we're talking to uh, Alan Stockdale, who is a treasurer in the Kennett government, and uh, Alistair Wardlaw. And they're talking to us all about their new knowledge management platform, Gnosis. And uh, that's going to be fascinating to hear how it all works. And after that, we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Leslake about, well, this month is uh, Glenn Stevens' last month as governor of the RBA and uh, Philip Lowe takes over. So we're talking about uh, what kind of work Philip Lowe has ahead of him with Saul Leslake. Yeah, Philip, of course, was uh, the deputy chief in there, but he's got a long record of working in America and a whole lot of other places. Well, he he actually uh, studied his doctorate and he studied it uh, with uh, people like Ben Bernanke. And, uh, you know, he, he actually went there to work at the RBA uh, right at the start. So yeah. it's going to be fascinating. But anyway, first of all, we're talking to uh, Alistair Wardlaw and Alan Stockdale from Gnosis. You guys listed last year and you've just done a big deal today with Singapore and uh, so tell us about it. Thanks for that, Leon. So yeah, in September last year, we decided to list. So it was a part of our goals to expand and accelerate our growth and to raise some capital to do that. And a part of that was also expanding into the Asia market where we saw there were some opportunities to do some, some more quicker deals within the enterprise space. So today we were able to announce a uh, successful pilot program with the uh, CIDIC organisation. So CIDIC Telecom, which is a subsidiary of the uh, CIDIC Limited, uh, obviously the uh, big conglomerate from China. Yep. So uh, it's a small rollout initially, but uh, uh, on success, we'll be expanding across the CITIC Telecom sort of department through the Asian region. What are the opportunities in Asia? I think they're enormous. Uh, the the product is suitable for both very large businesses and right down to small business. And of course, in Asia, there are a lot of companies who are expanding very rapidly. And I think we offer them a solution that's uh, not incredibly expensive, doesn't require a huge amount of integration and will manage their resources much better than they do now. You talk about knowledge management. In your terms, what does that mean? Because I think a lot of people would not be sure. Yeah, good question. So knowledge management, it's a practice that's been around for a long time. But the way we treat knowledge management, it's about being able to collect all the knowledge of an organisation, the disparate knowledge across all the various departments of an organisation and put them together in a seamless way that allows someone, a business in, in, in an operator to be able to access that information, whether it be processes, procedures, uh, workflows, and be able to use it in a, a far more productive and efficient way instead of spending their time. So it's about taking that asset of knowledge in your business and providing a single view of it and being able to sort of access it all at once and be able to deliver an outcome. So it's turning that knowledge which is locked into the business into an actionable transaction. Does it take much uh, data analysis and business analysis on your part? 
Uh, no, so it's the way we sort of deliver into the organisation, we try and sit on top of a lot of the uh, the tools and the applications and the knowledge that already lives there. So we don't want to come and replace the tools. We actually want to try and leverage those tools and actually create a better value proposition, be able to deliver more value for the business on top of those tools that already exist. Alan, you're chairman of the board. Where do you see the board taking NOSIS? I mean... You're going overseas, or how do you see your market, and where would you like to lead the company? Well, our primary focus, I guess, is on Australia and New Zealand. Uh, we already have a large customer in Australia who's been a substantial contributor to the development of the system, but uh, we're already active in Asia, and I think as we grow and get more critical mass, I think the growth is probably going to come mainly from Asia. I, I would imagine banks would be prime target for your company. Yes, that's right. So it's it's public knowledge, but our major customer is the ANZ Bank. So we've been working with them for over six years. So as Alan just mentioned before, we, they were instrumental in sort of providing us the backing uh, from a contractual space to be able to uh, commercialise and productise the, the business, which allowed us then to go into the IPO. So ANZ is a, a long-term customer. They've committed to us for a, a long a five-year contract. So we uh, are growing uh, organically within that business as well as looking for other opportunities. So banks are an ideal customer for us. Did the IPO change the company? I think IPO always changes a company in that it makes us more conscious of systems and governance standards, all those sorts of things. I think there are accountabilities that come with listing that you don't have when you're just a private company. But, of course, the trade-off for that is that we've gained access to capital and we needed capital. The product had been in development for a number of years that it had this major collaboration behind it with a very substantial business. And in order to build our sales force to manage our channel sales better, uh, we needed more capital and of course that's what the ASX is there for. And this would include marketing as well. You've got to get known don't you? Yeah, both marketing and sales. At the moment, our, our primary focus is really on sales. Like a lot of startups, uh, we need to prove that we can actually sell the product. And I think once we start selling it and once people understand how it's being used by our current large client, uh, that it will appeal to a lot more companies. One of the problems very large companies have is they're slow to move and they're always terrified about changing software. The great advantage of Gnosis is that it sits over all of their existing systems and uh, software packages and draws information as required from all of those disparate systems that companies use. Your competitors could include some of the biggest companies on earth, couldn't they? IBM and people like that. You're starting up in Melbourne. What special things do you think you bring? I think the agility of being a startup. Uh, we've been through the experience of working with a very large business, so our people understand large businesses. Um, obviously, we need to grow our critical mass and our resources, but I think we also have an outstanding product. And uh, there are plenty of knowledge management systems around the world, but I don't think any of them really compete directly head-to-head -head with us at the moment. We have some advantages that I think are particularly important for the medium and larger companies and it's just a matter of getting in the door and convincing them that we add value to their business. So what's the distinctive features that you offer that other knowledge management systems don't? 
Okay, I think the key features of where Gnosis is that knowledge management is, is uh, I suppose, as we mentioned before, a misunderstood practice. But what we try and deliver is two core areas. One is around digital transformation and working with organisations, being able to provide a tool and like a digital work centre that allows the knowledge management to be able to uh, integrate in with all the other tools within the organisation. So what we're trying to do there, we've had a uh, an experience with a investment uh, banker where he was spending three hours a day looking through uh, external information, business intelligence uh, and all feeds from different organisations and through his CRMs three hours a day trying to find the information to be a knowledge expert and be able to talk to their customers. We brought all of that together to a single screen and contextualised it and brought that from three hours to 30 minutes. So we can sort of bring a lot of productivity instantly by using knowledge management as a logical pillar to build these sort of uh, digital work centres for the organisation. On the other side, we also provide the ability to provide uh, information down to the customer end. So customer experience is one of the big areas that businesses are focusing on now and customer engagement. And what organisations are wanting to do is provide a seamless conversation with their customers, whether you're talking to them via the call centre in their retail environments or on the web or on the mobile phones. They want to have the same information, the same knowledge, the same seamless experience. So knowledge management provides that and Gnosis provides those tools to achieve that. In terms of scalability, are you looking, you, you've got the ANZ Bank, and that's a big bank by anybody's measure, but what about going down further into the thing to smaller companies, more specialised companies, would you manage, Would your product be scalable down to, say, an enterprise that might be making a lot of money but only have about 20 employees? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the platform's scalable from a very small instance because we're cloud-delivered, we can deliver it very quickly and efficiently to the organisation, and it scales up. Up proportionally up to the large enterprise. So what we try and do is actually we our, our go-to-market is through uh, channels, so we go through the large system integrators that uh, uh, already have relationships with a lot of these organisations and they deliver our product into those organisations so they can have direct relationships with the small, medium and large customers as well as the enterprise customers as well. So we're fully capable of... So you, so you can go either way? Correct, that's right. So it's uh, it's a, a very scalable platform because it's all license-based, really. Once the technology is available, whether we're delivering it via our cloud deployments or a customer's or partner's cloud deployments, it's it's infinitely scalable to meet those demands. And you, you would have the sales staff that could uh, handle both ends of the market? Correct. So we, as, as we mentioned before, we try and deliver, we're a very leveraged business and so we have uh, some of our internal staff are dedicated to sales and direct sales, but really we're focused on trying to deliver most of our sales through channels and that's channels in Australia. We've got New Zealand partners as well as partners in South, Southeast Asia as well. So they handle all the direct relationships, the contractual relationships, and we're really focused on delivering the software. So it's a highly leveraged business. So your market would be or your product would be ideal for, say, Southeast Asian countries and, and 
companies. What about China? I mean, that that's a huge market and pretty challenging, I would think. China definitely is uh, is a potential for us. We're we're looking. We're we're obviously managing what we can do. Our growth is, needs to be very controlled and managed, and that's why we're targeting Southeast Asia. Our partners over there already have footprints and relationships within all different areas across the Asian uh, continent. So we're using those to be able to leverage in, as well as working with big providers, so like like the IBMs and those type of organisations, to see if we can do uh, potential leverage deals together. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, as you say, interesting. It's fascinating the way companies, rather slowly I think, but certainly um, Australian companies are learning to use big data handle their information properly, secure it, and uh, profit by it. That's right. And uh, outfits like Gnosis and uh, indeed knowledge management is very much the way of the future, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So now, Saul, and uh, let's hope it's a good future, but right now it's looking a bit shaky. So it's like this month marks the end of Glenn Stevens' tenure at the Reserve Bank and uh, Philip Lowe takes on responsibility for the RBA after this. What's your take on it? Well, I think Glenn Stevens can look back on his decade at the helm of Australia's central bank with a fair degree of satisfaction regarding his performance. He gave his own accounting in his final speech in Sydney in late August, where, among other things, he presented a table showing aspects of Australia's economic performance during the past 10 years. And they show that, in particular... He achieved his primary goal of keeping Australia's inflation rate at between 2 and 3% on average over the course of the cycle. CPI averaged 2.3% per annum during his term, compared with 2.5% under his predecessor, Ian McFarlane. Uh, he achieved that without significant sacrifice in terms of unemployment. In fact, the unemployment rate during his decade averaged five and a quarter percent compared with 6.4 percent under Ian McFarlane and an average of around eight percent over the previous 20 years. One area where he didn't do as well as his immediate predecessors was with regard to economic growth, which averaged 2.8 percent per annum over his decade in office compared with 3.6 6% per annum under Ian McFarlane and about 3% per annum over the previous two decades. One of the reasons for that was that productivity growth slowed during his period in office to an average of 1.5% per annum from one and three quarters percent per annum over the two previous decades. And he also had to contend with the fact that there was a steady decline in average hours worked by those in employment during his decade in office. Uh, although he didn't say it explicitly, during his period as governor of the Reserve Bank, he had to deal with two almost unprecedented challenges. First, the global financial crisis, which induced the world's most serious economic downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. And although monetary policy wasn't the only reason why Australia was almost uniquely among Western nations able to avoid a recession here. It was certainly a contributor to that. And second, of course, he had to deal with the biggest commodities boom in Australia's history, which 
which history itself suggests usually ends in double-digit inflation followed by a severe recession. That's the way every other commodities boom in the 20th century ultimately ended. Uh, This one didn't, and I think Glenn Stevens can take a fair measure of the credit for that. Since the end of the commodities boom, of course, he's had to contend with many of the same issues that other central banks around the world have had to deal with, including persistently low growth, surprisingly low inflation, and increasing doubts about the effectiveness of traditional monetary policy exercise through cuts in interest rates to stimulate a return to the sorts of economic growth rates that we've come to regard as normal. But overall, I think Glenn Stevens can be well pleased with the way history is likely to record how he did his job as governor of the Reserve Bank. In addition, I think uh, history will also note that Glenn Stevens presided over a significant in- increase in the transparency of Australia's central bank. It's easy now to forget that before he came to the position of governor, uh, we didn't get minutes of Reserve Bank board meetings, and we only got statements from the Reserve Bank after board meetings when they actually made a decision to raise or lower the level of interest rates. Now we get some indication of the Reserve Bank's thinking after every meeting. We get the minutes, which provide further detail about what the Reserve Bank Board discussed at its meetings and why they came to the conclusions which they did. He's also given far more speeches than most other governors in the past and has encouraged some of his other officers similarly to be more forthcoming with the general public in ways that I think have enhanced the understanding of monetary policy throughout the Australian community. And in addition, he has from time to time strayed outside the narrow remit of the business of setting interest rates to offer what I think have been generally thoughtful commentaries about other aspects of economic policy, including the role that infrastructure spending might play in creating faster economic growth and boosting confidence and in making the case for other types of economic reforms as well. So, as I say, I think Glenn Stevens has been one of Australia's great public servants in the uh, most meaningful sense of that term. Uh, he is only 58, so presumably he's going to go on to uh, serve the, either the Australian community or work in the private sector in other ways, which we'll just have to wait and see how they turn out. Uh, Philip Lowe moves into a very different climate from what Glenn Stevens had, and uh, we're now in a period of low inflation. Uh, there's prospects of negative interest rates coming in. What's your view? Well, yes, Phil Lowe will be come to the job with a very considerable range of experience. Indeed, Phil Lowe has been a beneficiary of a different approach that was taken initially by Ian McFarland during his term of governor and pursued as well by Glenn Stevens of having a much more rounded experience than previous central bank governors have had. So although Phil Lowe has worked for the Reserve Bank all of his working life. Indeed, he actually went to the Reserve Bank shortly after leaving high school in Wagga and went through Sydney University studying economics part-time and subsequently went to do a PhD, I think, at Princeton University studying with, among others, former Federal Reserve Bank Governor Ben Bernanke. So he's exceptionally well qualified uh, for the job. I think he's the first central bank governor to have a PhD 
PhD in economics since Nugget Coombs, who was the first governor of the Reserve Bank. And he also brings to the job a period working with the Bank for International Settlements at Basel in Switzerland, that's sometimes known as the Central Bankers Central Bank. And during the last 15 years or so, the Bank for International Settlements has carved out for itself a more critical perspective on the role of central banking than what you might hear from most central banks themselves, in particular during Phil Lowe's time at the Bank for International Settlements, or BIS. He co-authored a number of papers that were critical of the lax stance of monetary policy that many central banks, though not the Reserve Bank of Australia, had adopted at the time and arguably gave some warning of the troubles that lay ahead, uh, which came to fruition during the global financial crisis. Phil Lowe's writings during that time with his co-authors emphasised the importance of paying attention to financial system stability as well as simply seeking to keep inflation close to whatever the central bank's ascribed target range was. Now, it will be interesting to see the extent to which he brings that background to the tasks that will be his lot as Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia from September onwards. Uh, He may be hesitant to go much further down the path of cutting interest rates to new record lows. And if, as has been suggested recently, the US Federal Reserve uh, returns to the path of lifting US interest rates, then he may not need to cut interest rates again because the Australian dollar will almost certainly fall further if the US Federal Reserve raises US interest rates and the US dollar starts going up again against uh, other major currencies around the world. But Phil Lowe will probably give some considerable thought to the possible consequences of extremely low interest rates for other parts of the economy. He may further the interest which developed under Glenn Stevens in other ways of managing some of the risks associated with low interest rates, such as excessive speculative demand for residential real estate. He'll probably also continue the work the Reserve Bank has been doing on what options might be available to it in the event of another significant shock to the global economy, or in Australia's case in particular, uh, how we might deal, given that we'll be starting from a period when interest rates are unusually low, of the possible consequences of hard landing in China, our biggest trading partner. And he'll no doubt want to share some of the Reserve Bank's thinking about those issues with the broader Australian public during the speeches that he will begin to give as Governor of the Reserve Bank. So, Les, like, uh, that means we're in some, some fascinating times starting next month. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, that's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Well, uh, Gary, that was fascinating what Saul had to say, wasn't it? Indeed it was, yeah. It's a very, very different world that he's inheriting from what uh, Glenn Stevens had. And uh, we're looking at uh, what seems to be permanently low rates for some time, so they're going to have to think of some sort of different strategy, I would imagine. Yeah, it better not be low as low all the time. That's right, that's right. But anyway, yeah. anyway uh, uh, to the news. And uh, Janet Yellen, the head of the US Federal Reserve, says a case for a rate rise has strengthened, and she was speaking at the annual meeting of central bankers, and she said the tighter US labor market would push inflation back up the up to the Fed's target band of two to three percent, and strengthening the case for a rate rise, possibly for as early as September. Now Ms. Yellen said continued solid performance of the labor market meant, in her words, the case for an increase in federal funds rate has strengthened in recent months. And uh, she didn't actually say when the rates would rise, 
but she also said future rate rises would be gradual. And after her news of her views broke, Fed fund futures moved from pricing a rate rise from about 32% in September to 42%. So watch out over the next few weeks, Gary. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I personally think it'd be a good idea if we thought, or you know, the RBA thought of raising rates because the last two drops here uh, achieved almost nothing except a rise in the price of houses. Well, indeed, indeed. and uh, But for that matter, while we're at it, uh, Housing Industry Association figures show that new home sales fell to a two-year low in July and uh, detached home purchases fell in every mainland state. The 9.7% decline in sales pulled the total of houses and apartments sold for the month to 7,110. That's the lowest since July 2014. And a 7.4% decline in detached houses and a 17.3% drop in apartments, units and townhouses drove a decline that the HIA says is only likely to accelerate. And the HIA says in all likelihood we're going to experience sharper falls in new home construction in 2017 and 18, and that's despite low interest rates. Yeah, that's right. And I think if the, you put it up a little bit, it, uh, it, yeah, I don't know what they do now, really. We're almost at the bottom of the barrel. That's right. Uh, at the same time, uh, it's interesting, uh, everyone is building apartments and a surge in new apartment plans has offset a decline in house approvals and driven the number of new building permits up by 11.3% in July. And that's the biggest jump in monthly approvals in two and a half years. 21,000 approvals was the second highest recording by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And in seasonally adjusted terms, apartment approvals had jumped by 23% for the month to 11,393. That's almost 16% higher than a year ago but the number of house approvals went down 0.5 percent it's now roughly three percent lower over the year so what's holding up the housing approval market are apartments gary yeah that's right there's a a strong opinion around the place by uh, analysts that uh, the kind of apartments they're building the apartments are too small and i note a report this week that uh, the apartments planned are going to be much bigger. Yeah, I think so. I think they have to be. I think they have to be. Now, consumer confidence has slipped 2.8% in the week ending 28th of August, but it remains at a three-year high, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. Now, households' view of the economic outlook over the past 12 months, which bounced over the previous week, fell a sharp 7%. Views of the five-year economic outlook dropped 7.5%, but the four-week moving average of Index of Current Finances now sits at a post-GFC high. So despite the slippage, it's still pretty high. Yeah, indeed. Now, uh, to Parliament, and uh, the two sides are butting, still butting their heads over the budget, and Labor is accusing the Turnbull government of being, what in their words, entirely deceptive about the budget savings bill it wants the opposition to support. And Manager of Opposition Business Tony Burke says a draft omnibus bill provided by Labor overnight contains three extra measures, including welfare cuts it rejected in the last Parliament. One of the extra measures is a move to strip welfare payments from criminals being held in psychiatric facilities, which is expected to affect some 350 people and save taxpayers nearly $30 million. Now, Labor opposed it in the previous Parliament, saying it would have serious negative impacts in the rehabilitation of criminals in psychiatric confinements. And the other two measures are abolishing the National Health Performance Agency, which the government says is closed and just needs to be wiped from legislation, and making changes to appeal arrangements for veterans and military widows, which attracted bipartisan support in the previous Parliament but didn't pass the Senate due to crossbench concern. 
Now, the text of the bill, which includes $6.1 billion of savings all up, says it's part of a concerted strategy to demonstrate immediate and tangible progress towards fiscal repair. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull on Monday described repairing the budget as a fundamental moral challenge. I mean, this is a big issue they're both grappling with at the moment, Gary. Yeah, indeed. And I think he's right. I mean, what he's actually saying is let's stop punching one another in the head and start tackling the problems. Absolutely, absolutely, and they need to be tackled. Now, the Turnbull government, interestingly enough, has headed off a Labor push into a Banking Royal Commission. It's announced an inquiry into specific cases of banks mistreating small business customers. And Kelly O'Dwyer, the Minister for Revenue and Financial Services, announced a new inquiry which will take the heat out of calls for Royal Commission and stop the prospect of government MPs crossing the floor to support it. And the inquiry comes on top of the government now requiring bank executives to appear at least once a year before a parliamentary committee and promising to establish a bank victims tribunal. At the same time, though, Bill Shorten put forward a motion for a royal commission, but that's not going to get up. No, that won't get up. and It would be fiendishly expensive anyway. And and, uh, dare I say it, uh, Darren Hintz, I think, is right when he says... It's a parliamentary issue. Why don't you just get Parliament to answer it? That's right. That's right. And look, it's just expensive and it's just a goldmine for lawyers. Now to corporate news and transport group McAleese has collapsed and entered into a binding agreement with its finances at Hong Kong debt trader SC Lowy in relation to proposed recapitalization subject to strict conditions. Now that deal would have required property group TTPH Limited to lower rents to waive rights to terminate haulage contracts. And when McAleese sent a letter to SC Lowy over the weekend asking for a waiver on the TTPH conditions, the debt company refused to budge and was in a position to call for immediate payment of the debt and as a result, Administrators McGrath-Nickel have been called in because the condition was not met by Friday's deadline. So McAleese is now in administration. Yeah, I'd like you to go on. Didn't they buy a pallet company? And a lot of the problems came out of that. That's right, yes. Yeah, so they're struggling now. And uh, meanwhile, billionaire James Packer has sold down his majority control of casino company Crown Resorts. Now, Packer made about $450 million from the sale of 35 million Crown Resorts shares, about 4.8% of the company, controlled by his private investment vehicle, Consolidated Press Holdings, which, of course, was a vehicle set up by his late father, Kerry Packer. And the shares were sold at $12.80, which is 5% discount to last Friday's $13.52 closing prices, and below the $13.30 they were selling earlier this week. Now, in its letter to Crown, CPH said it remained committed to Crown and didn't elaborate on the reason for the sale, nor did it identify the buyers. But we know that this sale was paying down debts following Packer's $1.25 billion settlement last year with his sister Gretel, who had negotiated stakes in the listed Crown Resorts, American-listed online real estate business Zillow, cash holdings, and some interest in CPH. And James Packer had reportedly taken on some a lot of debt as part of that settlement with his sister. And, of course, this sell-down comes at a time when Crown Resorts is pursuing a demerger of its operations, which will see the company holding its stake in the trouble Asian gaming company Melco Crown in Macau and some other international assets, and the other will house Crown's Australian casino businesses. So it's all happening there. Yeah, it's yet another family dispute. I'll take you back to, uh, to Gina Reinhardt. Which is very interesting too, because Gina Reinhardt is reportedly looking at joining up with Shanghai CRED, which is owned by Chinese businessman 
Guo to do a joint bid for Kidman, which is the biggest property company in Australia. Now, this comes after a company, Hancock Prospecting, purchased two more pastoral stages in the Northern Territory, covering more than 550,000 hectares. So she's moving into the agriculture. And the bid would be politically significant because it follows on from Treasurer Scott Morrison's decision in April to block the sale of Australia's biggest cattle empire, to China's interests. Now, Shanghai CRED was in the consortium twice rejected by Morrison in its bid to purchase Kisman, and the cattle portfolio would be worth $300 million, according to Sky News. Now, I reckon, Gary, a bid involving Reinhardt is more likely to go through because she has close links with Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce and other prominent Liberals. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's a political thing, not uh, not about who owns what. Gina's got a lot of clout in Canberra. That's right. Now, former Liberal MP Sophie Mirabella, of course, has recently appointed head of government and media relations for Ms. Reinhardt's company, Hancock Prospecting. So it's all happening there. Now, US hardware giant Lowe's has thrown a spanner into Woolworths moves to offload its master hardware stores. Lowe's was a one-third venture partner with Woolworths in the failed Masters hardware chain, which was a spectacular cash drain for Woolworths and failed to make a dent in the sales or earnings of West Farmers' own rival Bunnings. And last week, Woolworths announced that all of Masters' stores would close before the end of the year and the stock would be liquidated and the property sold with the expected gross proceeds of $1.5 billion. But all of that's been thrown into doubt by legal action that Lowe has launched in the federal court, and they want masters to be liquidated, Gary. They're on the uh, sort of thin end of the rod, aren't they? I mean, basically, they've got a lot of money involved in this thing. They're going to lose a lot of money, whatever happens. That's right, yeah. Now, um, finally, Gary, a report into Brazil's worst ever environmental disaster has revealed that the fatal collapse of the Samarco mine, which was owned by Vala SA and BHP Billiton last November, was caused by drainage and design. And the 76-page report into the catastrophe collapse of the tailings dam, which killed 19 people, might affect what happens to the two mining companies now locked into compensation negotiations with the Brazilian government. Now, this investigation didn't blame anyone or mentioned problems in corporate or regulatory practice, but it did say the dam had less efficient drainage as a result of a change in its design between 2011 and 12, and that resulted in saturated sand in the dam, causing the process known as liquefaction, where the soil in the wall weakens and becomes structurally deficient. And so the dam collapsed. And I reckon that's going to add to the bill that BHP Billiton and Vale will have to pay Brazil. I think that's absolutely right. Um, if you want to know about liquefaction, Ask the guys in Christchurch because that's what led to uh, a lot of houses becoming uninhabitable, even if they would uh, have uh, earthquake damage. That's right. Yeah, indeed, indeed. It is a big, big problem. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week we have uh, Marissa Senzaki and Judy Watkins. Uh, they're from the business messaging app Slack, and they're going to be talking to us next week. Yep. Slack, by the way, if you can get in there, has one of the most interesting offices in Melbourne. I think it's fascinating being there. Yeah, just fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that's it for us this week, and, and you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.